Hey everyone, hope you're having a good week. Thanks for joining us uh, again today to worship and to dive into God's Word. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Today we're diving into Revelation 14 and we'll be looking at the entire chapter. So, so have it open either with a physical Bible or your iPad, but also you can log into cachurch.info and look up sermon notes in case you find that helpful as well. Guys, I hope you are finding this helpful, this series, uh, ultimately useful in your discipleship and your worship of the Lamb on the throne, because that is ultimately the purpose of Revelation. An apocalypse, and unveiling of Jesus, um, firmly reigning over his creation. So I'm going to start off by reading verses 1 to 5 of Revelation 14. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. All right, now, I don't know if you know this, but you are mentioned in the Bible. If you are a Christ follower, follower, you've made Jesus your first allegiance, then you have been mentioned throughout Revelation, and you're mentioned in this chapter as well. You are part of the 144,000 that, that John sees on Mount Zion with the Lamb, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Last week, we saw a warning about aligning oneself with the beast, the lures of the world. And this was symbolically represented as 666 on the forehead or a mark on the hand. Here we see those who belong not to the beast, but to the Lamb. That is you, if you're a Christ follower. And they are doing what saints ought to do. They are worshiping. What a beautiful opening scene. Like many times, the reminder is that as crazy as things get, pandemically, politically, and personally, the Lamb is on the throne. That's pastoral alliteration there. Uh, that that our, our bearing and our center in difficult times is found in worship and in giving our attention to the Lamb. And this is revisited over and over in Revelation. All of creation finding its proper place and fulfilling its purpose when it worships and follows Jesus. Well, it says, John looked and he saw those who belonged to the Lamb with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Well, what is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the place where God is enthroned. In Psalm 2.6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Throughout the Psalms, we come to associate Mount Zion with Jerusalem because the temple was located there. So that's where God was located with his people. But it becomes evident that Mount Zion is more than an earthly geological uh, location, geographical location. It represents the rule of God. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author speaks of the beautiful invitation given to all who want to come to God. That when we do, we spiritually, it says in Hebrews 12, 22, we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So Mount Zion is where God and his people meet and where he is rightly worshipped. 
And that is what we, we come to see here again. The same cosmic worship we visited throughout the book. We have the thunder of God's presence, the four creatures representing all of creation. We have the elders, the 24 elders we learned earlier, representing the, the entire historic community of God worshipers. And we have songs, it says in verse 3, being sung by the saints that no one could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There are songs, there are ways of seeing the world that are ours because we belong to Jesus, that others just can't sing. There are beauties that we can experience that others simply cannot experience. When, when I receive a gift from somebody and I don't know who it's from, I get frustrated. I, I want to say thank you. Have you ever received something from someone, a, a secret uh, admirer or a secret Santa, and you, you want to give thanks to that person, but you don't know who gave it to you? That can be frustrating. Well, when it comes to the beauty of creation, we're not frustrated. We can thank God. We can reflect on the beauty of creation. In, in, in a, and that's a fulfilling way to go about life. It's a way of fulfilling our faith. We see people differently as those created in the image of God. We see the world differently. When it comes to ups and downs of history of this last year and a half, we can have perspective and hope and peace. Whether we choose it is up to us, but we can have those things because we're numbered with the 144,000 sealed and held for God and singing a new song. Again, that's not a fixed number. We know that the 144,000 is a, a symbol to represent a great uncountable number of every language, tribe, and nation who belong to the Lamb. And there are certain characteristics of the, that are true of the 144,000. There's a purity of this church. They are undefiled, it says. As, jo as jo John describes this bunch, he describes them as those who have not been defiled by women, that seems strange, who have kept their virginity. They, they follow the lamb wherever he, he goes. They are the first fruits and they are people of truth. They're not liars. What does that mean, not defiling themselves with women? It sounds a little harsh, but we need to keep in mind one of the great metaphors of scripture is that God's relationship with his people is like that of a marriage covenant. And that idolatry, the worshiping of other gods and ideas is the spiritual equivalent to adultery. Throughout scripture, the idea of, of God um, and his, his people is that they're like promised lovers to each other. God calls Israel his bride in Jeremiah 2.2. And then he expresses his, his broken heart as, she, as a nation begins to worship other false gods. In Jeremiah 2.23, he compares it to ru the running back and forth of a mating animal. Throughout the Old Testament, his heart is broken over and over again as Israel worships other gods. The image of Israel as a, as a prostitute going to other lovers who are abusive and harmful is, is revisited, especially by the prophet Hosea. And here the point in Revelation 14.4 is that a characteristic of God's people is that they do not get involved intimately with Babylon. See, as we'll see in the, the final chapter of Revelation, all of this is leading toward a cosmic wedding where Christ and his bride, the church, are fully united the, and the wedding gift being his kingdom, a new Jerusalem. And so one of the defining characteristics of the church is our unwillingness to defile ourselves. As Daryl Johnson says in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, the redeemed know that they belong to the one husband and they do not want to be caught sleeping with another lover. They do not want to be caught in bed with the world. They want to be faithful lovers of the lover of their souls. Well, next, the 144,000 are referred to as being blameless. 
They are people set aside and lovers of truth. They're blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. Blamelessness is, is a given label. It's not perfection. It's the fact that you have nothing held against you. Well, as followers of the Lamb, we are given a status of blamelessness. In Jude, verses 24 to 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And what a beautiful text. And I would argue that the more we understand ourselves to be blameless in the eyes of the highest court before the throne room of the Lamb, the less likely we are to be people who pursue lies. See, lies are a sign that we're trying to create a false self. And when we find our truest self in our relationship to the Lamb, to the, to the Creator, lying is less attractive. It's less needed. Why be liars? Who are we trying to impress? Revisiting the gospel in our lives produces people of truth. Well, next in this text, we have the angels and their announcements, and they have messages for the entire earth to hear. And it's, it's been evident throughout the book of Revelation it, it, that it's leading to judgment. There have been warning, there have been warning after warning, warnings, what, what some have called micro-judgments throughout the book, all in hopes that more would be added to the Lamb's book of life, that more would be saved, would say no to the dragon and yes to the Lamb. Well, the first angel reminds us uh, that creation ought to give glory to God. He is the one to be feared, not the beast. This is the eternal gospel, the eternal good news. Proclaim to every nation and tribe and language, fear God and give him glory. All his promises are about to come true. Vindication is here. Then with the second angel, the angel gives the message that the followers of the Lamb, the persecuted church, they've been, who've been faithful, they have been calling out for justice. This is the, the message they've been waiting for in all of history. Evil is done. Whichever puppet the devil has used, whichever political or ideological uh, puppet, their day will be over when God proclaims it is finished. The great evil influence fighting against the power of God, his people, his church, his kingdom with lures and temptations, drawing people away from life, it's done. And all of that goes with, with the threat of conformity, the threat of persecution, but also the false promises of, of self-seeking and God-denying action. Again, this is compared to sexual immorality in this text. Idolatry is spiritual idolatry. Idolatry. And the second angel proclaims, fallen is Babylon the great. It's done. Evil is done with all its lures. Well, then the third angel says this, and it's a demand for proper glory to be given to God by the first, the rightful judgment of Babylon declared by the second angel, and then the consequences of choosing one over the other by the third angel in verses 9 to 13. Verse 9 says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Well, guys, talk of judgment is hard to listen to. I would say it's much harder for modern ears than 2,000 years ago for a suffering church. And I would say it's much more difficult for Western ears where we have not really known true persecution. But for a church that has watched its family members taken to prison where Christians were 
kicked out of cities, where they were often in fear of death. Judgment was always in question, always a question. How can evil be allowed to thrive? God, do you not see this? How can a righteous God be okay with this? How can those who are willingly choose to blaspheme you and kill us be allowed to go on without judgment? And God's answer to the saints asking this question way back in Revelation 6.10 is to give them the full revelation, this full apocalypse, which shows opportunity after opportunity given for followers of Babylon to repent. Opportunity given to the world to turn to the Lamb and when all else fails, we see God succumbing to their wishes and offering judgment. As some have said, God is a gentleman and will not force people into his kingdom. J.I. Packer says it this way in his classic book, Knowing God. He says, we need therefore to remember that the key to inter inter interpreting the many biblical passage, often highly figurative, which picture the divine king and judge as active against men in wrath and vengeance, is to realize that what God is hereby doing is no more than ratifying and confirm the judgments which those whom he visits have already passed on themselves by the courses they have chosen to follow. In other words, the view of Revelation and of all of Scripture as a whole is that all God is doing in his judgment and wrath is opening the door that many have been trying to push down with the trajectory of their lives. It's sad. And now in Revelation, there seems to be a very strong line drawn between following Jesus and following the beast. It's such a strong, defined line here. We see followers making a strong, adamant decision for one or the other, either worshiping the lamb or blaspheming the lamb, in fearing the beast or bowing to the beast. But, but what about those that you and I know and, and those that you and I love who don't seem to fit into that category, who would never say that they are choosing the world over God? Or what about those who, who haven't heard? These are ongoing questions and burdens the church has struggled with since the beginning. And I think what is helpful is helpful for me and, and, and it's a comfort is that it's important to remember that God is a righteous judge. He's a good judge. He's a loving, compassionate judge that does all he can to get people into his kingdom. The cross itself is, is kind of a judgment loophole where Jesus willingly took the punishment for sin on his own back in a way diverting the rightful punishment for our sin onto himself so God's heart we see is not for judgment on his creation. The language of judgment in verses 9 to 10, again, we, we can say is, is symbolic. It echoes the ancient judgment thrown on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19 for their sin, fire and sulfur. But symbol or not, it points to a very real consequence. There is a final judgment for refusing God and actively following the beast. A final releasing of those who want nothing to do with God. And although we as a church celebrate the defeat of the dragon and his associates, we mourn for those who shake their fist at God and drink the luxuries of the beast, believing that it'll bring life. Well, as is common, after we see images of justice and, and God moving, it's, it's a reminder to the church, it's a call for endurance, it says in verse 12. Verse 12 says, endure, that, that's where the death of those who pledge allegiance to the beast brings judgment, the death of those who have pledged allegiance to the lamb brings rest. Their allegiance follows them. They've been faithful in life. He will be faithful in our death. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm sure the first century church reminded themselves of these words of Jesus every day as we should as well. 
And so in verse 13, a, a voice from heaven tells John to make sure he does not miss this. Write this down, he says. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, it's repeated, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's interesting that documents from the early church referred to the day of someone's martyrdom as the day of their victory. It was the day they followed Jesus into new life. This is a gathering of all those who belong to Jesus at the right time. He will gather us in. In verses 14 to 20, we see what I would call the costly harvest. That's what we see in, these, in this next image, the reaping, the bringing in of the harvest. Now, what apocalyptic creature do you think of when you think of a sharp sickle in his hand? Probably the grim reaper or what some label the angel of death in a, in a dark row. But the sickle and the one who holds it, I think, is getting a bad rap. <laughs> a sickle did not necessarily hold a negative context in the first century. It was actually part of the most celebrated time of the year. It was the harvest. But who holds the sickle here? Well, it's Jesus, one like a son of man with a golden crown, riding on a cloud, it says in verse 14. Well, we know from the prophet Daniel and the first century and, and his own words in the Gospels that this is a reference to Jesus. So Jesus wields the sickle and is told to reap because the time is right. In verse 15, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. These are, these are actually celebratory words. They, they echo what Israeli farmers would say at harvest time. This brings an, an image to mind of, of harvest that, that Jesus himself shared in John's gospel in John 4.35. Jesus said, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. These were words implying salvation is available. It's time to bring in the harvest. These are words implying that, that God has waited for the right time and now he is bringing in his harvest. You and I are the harvest. The 144,000 are the harvest. Well, the second part of this harvesting, verses 17 to 20, it focuses on a vineyard. And this part is a little more difficult to unpack. And it's quite a grim picture. Instead of a harvest of grain, we have a harvest of grapes thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God and out comes blood. That is 1600 stadia or stadia or 184 miles long and is up to the bridle of a horse, a horse. So three or four feet high and running 185 miles. That's gross. And there have been sermons preached and hymns sung that picture these grapes as the gathered followers of the beast now tasting judgment. But I think we're seeing something even more dramatic. In scripture, whenever the idea of gathering the grapes of harvest of the earth is used metaphorically, it refers to Israel, the people of God. Israel was often compared to a, a grapevine or God's vineyard. In Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, Isaiah or God speaks of, of Israel as his beloved vineyard. In Jeremiah 2, 21, Israel is referred to as the choice vine that was planted by God. In Hosea 9.10, Israel is referred to as grapes that God found in the desert. But then in John's gospel, in the 15th chapter, Jesus says, I am the true vine. He says this in verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And, and those who belong to him are branches of the vine. That's you and I. Jesus is the representative of the vine of Israel and we are the extension of that family. He goes on to say in John 15.5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Well, the connection would not be lost on John's readers. But also notice that in verse 20 of Revelation 14, that these grapes are taken outside of the city to be trodden on, to be crushed. Well, this phrase had an important implication to the first century church. We can't pass by it. It was the place where Jesus was crucified, outside the city, at Golgotha, the place of the skull. The author of Hebrews uses this phrase as well when speaking of Jesus' crucifixion in Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells us the, the parable of the, the vineyard tenants to his disciples. A story of a vineyard entrusted to others to tend and make sure the, vi the vineyard was healthy. And when the owner of the vineyard sent his, his servants to check up on it, the tenants beat them and stoned them. So he thought, well, I'll send my son to represent me. They'll, of course they're going to represent my son. But when he sent his son, it says in the parable in Matthew 21, 39, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The parable was a clear critique on the rulers of Jerusalem who were not taking care of God's people. And the priests and the Pharisees got pretty mad at Jesus over this story. You can read about it in Matthew 21. But it was also prophetic that Jesus, the Son of God, the God of Israel, would give his life outside the vineyard, outside Jerusalem, outside the city. Guys, outside is where our salvation takes place, where Christ was crucified. And so I would follow along with a lot of other theologians that say that the blood that flows so deep and so wide in Revelation 14, 20 is the blood of Christ. This is the blood of the Lamb. It is the extreme love poured out outside the city that brought us salvation. This is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God that Paul writes about in Ephesians 3:18. This is the kind of love that causes us to sing how deep the Father's love for us, so vast beyond all measure. It's why the 144,000 sing in verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 14. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of, of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is the price of our redemption the basis of our song, the measure of God's love, and the hope of all who call on Jesus. Because as Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those aiming for judgment will be saved if they call on his name. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be sealed for salvation and will find a home in his heavenly kingdom. How do we know? Well, because the lamb who was slain is also the lamb on the throne. He was dead but is alive forevermore. The one who was crushed for our sins, who spilled his blood for our redemption outside the city, was and is and is to come. He's punctured a hole through death and disarmed it of all its power and in love invites us to follow. And this affects everything we encounter. It was the strength of the early church and it is the strength of the modern church. Because he conquered death, we are more than conquerors. Death does not have the final word. COVID does not have the final word. Evil does not have the final word. Present circumstances will not be our final story. 
That which seems insurmountable will one day be behind us because of the love given us through Christ. Amen. Church, I love you. I can't wait to see you face to face. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his eternal peace. Amen.